um, as we come to read from God's word. Lord, I thank you for the way you have moved this morning already in our midst and spoken to us. I pray you would continue to have your way to speak to our hearts, to change lives and to bring us to a place of worship and praise, praising the powerful and awesome name of Jesus Christ um, during this time as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why is there suffering in the world? Why doesn't God do anything about injustice? These are questions that Christians and non-Christians alike have asked me and potentially asked you as well. And sometimes the questions are way more personal than that and therefore that much more important. Why has this horrible thing happened to me? I prayed, why didn't God answer me when I prayed? Why would God let this happen to me or to my friend or to a member of my family? Important questions, big, big questions. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you might think that God is silent on these issues. You might even think, as some new atheists, in my opinion, arrogantly proclaim, that the problem of evil disproves the existence of the Christian God. Well, over the next four weeks, we're going to read together the book of Habakkuk, which is an He's an Old Testament prophet who wrote his prophecies about 600 BC, so 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And he speaks directly into these questions. If you, if you think that the problem of evil disproves the Christian God, read the book of Habakkuk and show that this is an issue, this is a question that the writers of the Bible are grappling with and seeking to understand and that God is not silent on this question. It's not a simple, oh, I've proven that Christianity is untrue. No, this book, written thousands of years ago, speaks into these issues. It also happens to be my favourite book of the Bible. I don't know whether you're allowed to have favourite books of the Bible, but it's three chapters long, it's an Old Testament prophet, and I adore this book of the Bible. I've held off from the launch of this church until now to preach this sermon series. Um, so I'm so excited. And if you're sitting there going, oh, Habakkuk, I haven't even heard of that book of the Bible. I'm so uninterested in this. Well, I hope by the end of the series, you will agree with me that this is the best book in all of the Bible. <laughs> I, I hope you will benefit richly from it. So I'm going to start by reading to you the first four verses of Habakkuk chapter one. We're going to read the chapter in parts today. So I'm going to preach on chapter one, but we're going to read it in parts. And so I'm going to start by reading Habakkuk chapter one, verses one to four. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralysed. And justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The book of Habakkuk starts with a complaint. Habakkuk the prophet complains to God and 
When I read that complaint to open this book, I can see two problems and one provocation in those four verses. Two problems that Habakkuk's raising to God and one provocation, one challenge for us as Christians today. So problem one that Habakkuk's complaining to God about is there's injustice and violence in Israel. In verse two, Habakkuk cries violence to God. In verse 3, Habakkuk says, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And in verse 4, Habakkuk says, the law doesn't do anything. The law is paralysed and justice never goes forth. There's no justice. Wicked people have the power and they surround the good people in Israel. This is Habakkuk's complaint. There's injustice and there's violence in this nation. Now, if you read 2 Kings chapter 23, you'll start to see the environment in which Habakkuk is prophesying. Pharaoh Necho has killed King Josiah and then the people of Israel appoint the rightful king of Israel, a man called um, King Jehoahaz. But King Pharaoh says, that's not the king that I want in Israel. I'm going to appoint my own man. And so King Jehoiakim King King Jehoiakim is king in Israel at this moment, but he is Pharaoh's man. So Egypt is controlling what's happening in Israel. And King Jehoiakim, his main role is to collect gold and silver and taxes and make sure that Egypt gets their pay. This is what's happening in the nation of Israel at the time when Habakkuk prophesied. So you can imagine the environment in Israel at the time. There's violence as the king tries to get money out of all of his people. The poor people are the ones suffering the most because they're paying the taxes that they can't afford to pay. And this man, King Jehoiakim, isn't the rightful king. And so he's clinging to power as he tries to tax the people and pay the Egyptians. You can just imagine the kind of world in which Habakkuk is living. The wicked people have the power. They hem in the righteous people. There's destruction, there's violence, there's contention, there's strife. Strife as Habakkuk prophesies to these people. So you can understand Habakkuk's complaint, can't you? That there's no justice in the land of Israel. So that's the first problem. There's injustice and there's violence that Habakkuk is pointing out to God and moaning about. But there's a second problem as well. And the second problem is this. When Habakkuk prays, it's like God isn't listening. When Habakkuk prays, he feels like God isn't listening. How long, how long, Habakkuk prays, shall I cry for help and you will not hear? He's obviously been praying this prayer over and over to God. Lord, do something about the destruction. Do something about the injustice. Do something about the violence. How long, Lord, do I have to pray this prayer and you will not hear me? He's saying, I've been crying violence to you and you're not saving. I'm crying violence and you're not doing anything, God. In verse 3, Habakkuk even accuses God of idleness. Why do you idly look at wrong? You're an idle God, you're not doing anything, says Habakkuk at the start of this book of the Bible. Now I wonder whether you have ever been in that place. I wonder whether you feel like that right now, this morning. You're praying for something And it feels like God isn't listening to you or hearing you. You're praying for something and you can't see what God is doing. And you think God is idle. God's not doing anything when I pray. You're desperate for God to intervene. And so you're going to your place of prayer. You're falling on your knees and nothing changes and nothing happens. Maybe you're praying for a personal issue 
or maybe you're praying for a big worldwide political issue. Maybe you're praying for Ukraine and you're, and you're asking, what is God doing? Is God doing anything? I'm, pr- I'm calling out against this in- injustice and violence and it seems like God is not doing anything. Well, I want you to notice in verse 1, Habakkuk is described as the prophet. Do you know not every prophet in the Old Testament has that title at the beginning of their book? But Habakkuk is described as Habakkuk the prophet. And even he is going through a season where he feels like he's not hearing from God, where he's praying and not getting a response. He feel, Even he is struggling with this. Do you know every single person... Every single Christian, I think, goes through a season at one time or another in their life where they're praying for something and they're frustrated with God at the lack of response or the lack of action that they get. That they, Every single person, even Habakkuk the prophet, feels in this moment like God isn't listening to them. So two big, big problems. Big, big problems at the start of this book. There's violence and there's injustice. And when Habakkuk prays, it feels like God isn't doing anything about what he's praying And yet one provocation in those four verses that I read to you, in his anger, in his frustration, in his disappointment and his pain and his suffering, Habakkuk keeps directing his prayers to God. Did you notice that? Oh Lord, at the beginning of verse two, he continues, even in the silence, to keep praying to God. And in fact, he's crying out with even greater intensity over and over as he prays and lifts these issues to God. You saw the word cry twice in verse two and the Hebrew verbs are intensive cries. This isn't Habakkuk going, oh dear Lord, would you please do something about this? No, this is, Lord, come on, there's violence, do something about it, move, please, stop being idle, hear me, listen to it. He's crying out from his heart and he's crying out with passion and emotion and he keeps directing his prayers to the Lord. He keeps speaking, he keeps praying, even as he's frustrated and he feels like he's getting nothing back. And you know what, when we go through those moments of feeling like God isn't listening or feeling like he's not responding to us, the temptation is to give up. I won't bother with prayer anymore. God's not listening to me, why bother? But actually Habakkuk shows us a better way in these first four verses. He says, bring your authentic, real, emotional prayers to God. Do you know, when we suffer, we tend to groan and moan to one another, don't we? Are you guilty of this? Something goes wrong and you go, right, who's the person who listens to me when I groan? Who stays silent the longest while I just list all the things that are going wrong in my life? Um, I don't know who that is for you. We tend to groan and moan. But Philippians 2, verse 14, in the New Testament, Paul writing says, do all things without grumbling. Have you ever heard of the game? It's called the Grumbling and Moaning Eclipse, the game. The Grumbling and Moaning Eclipse. And what the game is, is this lesson that when you grumble and moan as a Christian to others, you eclipse the light of Christ in your your witness to others. So if you grumble and moan all the time, you're eclipsing. That's called the game, the Grumbling and Moaning Eclipse. So Paul says, do all things without grumbling. Well, how can we do that? in light of what happens here at the beginning of Habakkuk 1? Well, the answer is, stop moaning to friends and family, people around you, do all things without grumbling, but start speaking to the one who can really do something about your situation, 
Start complaining to God. I, don't, I, get, I wonder how many people showed up this morning thinking the preacher would say, you're allowed to complain to God. Because that's what this book teaches us. Habakkuk shows us you're allowed to complain to God. And I believe actually there's freedom, healing and power in honest, authentic prayer, when we go to God and go, this is how I'm feeling. This is what's going on in the world. You're the all-powerful, all-glorious, mighty God. Would you please do something and listen to me when I pray? Well, let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, one of the ways we share the gospel is we talk about reconciliation. Jesus died on the cross in order to reconcile us to God the Father. We were once alienated from God, separate from him, far away from him, even hostile to him. We were enemies to God and Jesus died on the cross in order to reconcile us, to bring us close to God the Father, to bring us together, to reconcile us. Now, are we reconciled in order that we would only pray really holy and proper prayers in good, proper English and really formal? And re- no! We're reconciled to God the Father so we can have an honest, authentic, real relationship with God. That's why Jesus died on the cross. So that you have a Father in heaven who's big enough to listen to you when you pray. Even when you've got things going on in your life that are hard and difficult. And so what I'm going to do is I want to just pause for a moment in the middle of my sermon. And I want to invite you to quietly pray a prayer Whatever you want to pray about, what's your prayer that you've been praying for for ages and you feel like God hasn't heard you or God hasn't moved? Where's there violence and injustice going on in your life or in the world that you're crying out for and you want God to do something about? Whether it's a personal issue or a a world issue, just in a moment of quiet, just for a minute, tell God how you really feel about it. He's big enough to hear you and to understand. So just a moment of quiet to pray. Lord, I thank you that you've heard our prayers and I pray over the course of these next four weeks in this sermon series, we would hear responses, we would hear answers, we would understand what you're doing, we would see injustice change to justice, we would see an end to violence, Lord God. I just pray that you would move in the situations we've just raised to you, but thank you most of all that you've heard us and you're big enough to handle our real, raw emotions and feelings on these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, How will God respond to Habakkuk's complaint in Habakkuk chapter 1? Let's read the next few verses. Habakkuk 1 verses 5 to 11. And this is the Lord responding and answering Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own, 
They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So God's answer to Habakkuk is a shocking answer. God says so right at the start in verse five. He, he says, wonder and be astounded. I'm going to do something that you would not believe. Even though I'm telling you I'm going to do it, you're not going to believe it. It's such an astonishing thing that I'm doing. What's he going to do? Well, he's raising up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. That's what he says in verse six. And they're going to come and they're going to bring justice in Israel. It's quite a surprising answer from God, isn't it, in in this response? And that's precisely what happened. So this is written 600 BC, uh, 597 BC, the Babylonian Empire raised up. They conquer Jerusalem and the Jews go into exile. And so in in that exile narrative, that's where you get stories like Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel is one of the Jews who was in Jerusalem and taken to Babylon, taken away. And what makes this so such a surprising answer from God is look at the way the Babylonians are described in that passage. This is the way God describes the people who he's using to bring justice in Israel. He describes them as bitter, as hasty, as dreaded, as fearsome, fierce, proud, violent. They're scoffers. They laugh at other people. And did you see in verse 11, the kind of fine nail in the coffin describing this Babylonian people is they are guilty men whose own might is their God. That phrase in verse 11 is well worth meditating on just for a moment. Here is a very successful nation. You know, they aim to conquer many different lands and they're successful and good at it. They're fearsome and fierce and they conquer and destroy as they go. So they're very successful. Instead of giving God thanks and praise for the victories that God has given to them, they worship themselves. They say, we've done this by our own might. We praise our own power. We make our own rules. Who's God to us? We do what we want because we're the strongest nation. We're the best. No one can defeat us. And so they worship their own might. That's what verse 11 is saying about these Babylonian people. They're people who worship their own strength. Now, we can sit here and criticise the Babylonians and throughout this book, the Babylonians are going to be criticised and there is a judgment coming upon the Babylonians for the way they act in their invasions and uh, in conquerings, which we'll think about in chapter two. But I just want us to think about ourselves very briefly in relation to that verse, because there are many successful people in this room. There are people who have done amazing things. There are people who built great families. There are successful business people in this room. And the temptation in those moments of success, you 
you actually can be in a very dangerous place when you're successful because the temptation in your success is to worship yourself. It's to go, I'm fantastic. I'm brilliant. I've absolutely been fantastic. You know, even in church, there's a temptation to go, look, we're growing. We're church and through COVID, we've grown and more people, you know, aren't we brilliant? Aren't we fantastic? Let's worship ourselves and turn inward and give ourselves all the praise and glory. And of course, that's not what we do, is it? That's not what we do. We know that God gives us our successes. He guides us and strengthens us and comforts us through failures and failures and difficulties. But even in the successes, he's the one who's bringing the blessing. He's the one who's giving the success. So if you're in a successful part of your life right now, give the glory and praise to God for how he's blessing you, how he's guiding you. Let me ask you that question. Have you given praise and thanksgiving for the successes and blessings in your life? Because in chapter two, God will declare that earthly success is temporary and there is a judgment to come. And God in the judgment will show us and he will certainly show the Babylonians that he is God. He is the one who's worthy of praise and adoration and worship. And so we should by no means worship ourselves. It's a very big big mistake to worship yourself and forget that it is God who has worked in your successes. But God's response in verses 5 to 11, as he speaks about the Babylonians, demonstrates one thing beyond any doubt. Even the most powerful nation, even the most dangerous nation, is a tool in God's hand. Did you see that? It's God who raises up the Babylonians. It's God who uses them to bring justice in Israel. In other words, God's power is absolute. That's what these verses show us. God's power is absolute. The Babylonians are in every way ungodly. And one day they will get their just rewards for the way that they've acted and the sins that they have committed. But even these people, these Babylonians, God can use for his purposes. And in this instance, it's to bring an end to the injustice in Jerusalem, in Israel. It's to punish the people in Israel who have acted wickedly. Even these people, God can use for his purposes. And when we suffer, when we go through injustice, we may not understand what God is doing, but we always know that God is in control. We always know because he's king, he's the sovereign, his power is absolute. Now that is a wonderful thing if you are a Christian. Terrible thing if you're not a Christian, but a wonderful thing, a wonderful thing if you are a Christian. Because in Romans 8 verse 28, it's a very famous verse, often quoted, but it says this, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In all things. God works for the good of those who love him. Now, if God's power isn't absolute, if the Babylonians are completely out of God's control, then that isn't any comfort whatsoever because God doesn't have the power to work in all things for the good of those who love him. But if God's power is absolute, that he is the one who raises up the Babylonians and he is the one who judged the Babylonians and he is the one who's working in your life, then that is a glorious comfort that everything you go through, God will work in that for your good if you are a Christian if you are a lover of Jesus Christ and that is a wonderful place 
of comfort, even through the darkest and most difficult trials in your life, to cling to that truth, that God's power is absolute and he uses all things for my good. You can think about the thing that you prayed for. God is using that thing that you prayed about for the good of those who love him. Whether that's you in that situation or whether that's the Christians in Ukraine or the Christians in Russia or the Christians wherever. God is, God is working in those things for the good of those who love him. This doesn't mean life will be easy. It doesn't mean that you'll go through no suffering at all. I mean, look at what God is telling Habakkuk. He's telling him, you're going to be invaded by the Babylonians. So he's, talk, he's saying to Habakkuk, you're going to go through something really difficult in the near future. But that is com- it does bring comfort and hope, even in the darkest and most difficult of things we go through. And so even though those verses are shocking and surprising in verses 5 to 11, I find them to be powerful verses that comfort me when I go through bad and difficult times. God is in control and he, uses all, he works in all things for the good of those who love him. Well, how do you think Habakkuk's going to respond to God's answer? Well, let's find out and read Habakkuk 1, verses 12 to 17. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment... And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So three things strike me in Habakkuk's second complaint, his response to God's response. Firstly, he, as we were, I think, we're shocked at what God has said. In verse 12, you've established them for reproof. You're using them to bring justice in Israel. He is utterly stunned. He, he's, he, he, I, don't, I don't even have the words to express how stunned Habakkuk is that God would use the Babylonians. He is, he's absolutely shocked and surprised. And Habakkuk's surprise and shock emphasises again what we've just thought about that God has such great and absolute power that he can even use the Babylonians. But that's coming out from the heart of Habakkuk. He is shocked at God's answer to him. The second thing that strikes me from Habakkuk's response is he understands the idolatry of the Babylonians. He understands the temptation of idolatry in success. He compares the Babylonians to fishermen in that response. He he describes a violent picture of a fisherman casting his net and dragging up fish with a hook. And Habakkuk is saying, Babylon are the fishermen and the fish are the nations like Israel and the fish are being killed by being captured and brought up in a a net and they're being pierced and they're they're being treated horribly by the fishermen who are capturing them to eat them. But what Habakkuk really understands is that what will happen as a consequence of this action 
is that the Babylonians will worship themselves. Do you see in verse 15, he, he talks about rejoicing. And then in verse 16, he says he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet. So the picture here is a fisherman capturing fish and being really successful and then going, right, I'm going to worship the net because the net is the thing that's given me this great success. I've caught all these fish in my net. And so I'm going to get my net and build an altar and start bowing down to the net that has brought me this great success as a fisherman and worshipping that, making sacrifices to the dragnet. That's kind of what will happen in the Babylonians' life is they will have great might and success and therefore they'll worship their own might and success. They, instead of worshipping the God who's granted them success, they start worshipping the things around them that seem to have created their success. You know, it's a ridiculous picture, in a sense, of, of worshipping a net. What a ridiculous thing. Wouldn't it be silly if instead of doing church the way we're doing it, we would just get a net, a net up the front and we'd all bow down to the net? It would be utterly ridiculous. But that's what people do when they worship created things rather than the creator who has created all things. What, how should the fishermen react? The fishermen be, should be saying, thank you, God, for creating the oceans. Thank you, God, for creating the fish of the sea. Thank you, God, for feeding me by giving me the tools to capture the thing that I need to catch to eat. And thank you that you've created my inside so that I can digest this fish that I've caught. That's what, that's what the fishermen should be doing. But that's not what they're doing. They're worshipping a net because they're idiots. And that's, this is idolatry. This is what happens. We worship things that are created rather than God who has given us good gifts. And we're going to think more about idolatry next week in chapter 2, because it's a major theme of the book of Habakkuk. But the third thing that strikes me from Habakkuk's second complaint is that a change has already taken place in the heart of Habakkuk. I wonder whether you spotted it. He's still complaining. He's not holding back, is he, in describing his true feelings to God. And yet his prayer is full of names and qualities of God. In verse 12, he describes God as everlasting. He says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. I love that name of God, my Holy One. God is holy, he's perfect, he's separate, he's glorious, he's holy, but he's also my Holy One. That's just an amazing thing to put in a prayer. When you pray to God, you can say, God, you are my Holy One. You are holy, 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 and yet I have a relationship with you. You're my God. I love that. He, he says to God, you're the rock, oh rock. Habakkuk sensing that in God there's great strength and there's great security. And we, we don't, as Christians, we believe that Christ is the rock on which we stand. He is, he is the God who is the rock. And we, we find great security and safety in Christ, eternal safety. We, we rest upon the rock of Christ. We build our life upon the rock of Christ. And the waves cannot knock us down and we will go into eternity be, to be with God forever. In verse 13, Habakkuk speaks about the purity of God. So do you see Habakkuk is still moaning and complaining. He's not convinced that this is the right thing to do, but he's lacing his honest, authentic, emotional prayer with these wonderful names and qualities of the God whom he is praying to. Now, church, I want to draw to a close by telling you why this is my favourite book of the Bible. When I was 18 years old, I was a pretty smart kid. I was good at school. And my dream, the thing that I was pursuing passionately, was to go to Cambridge University. And me and my friends, that's what we wanted to do. We were the geeks of the class. We wanted to go to Cambridge, Cambridge or Oxford University. And that's, that's the thing I desperately, desperately wanted in life. And more than that, I felt that I deserved it, actually. 
Not only had I worked hard to get good grades, but I'd also led the Christian Union at school. I was the leader. I'd poured my energies during my lunchtime into sharing the gospel with people in my school. And, and we'd seen great success in the Christian Union. It was amazing. We used to do responses and we saw people say, I want to give my life to Jesus in a Christian Union. It was kind of amazing. It was, it was brilliant what God was doing in the Christian Union. So I really deserved to get the thing that I desperately wanted. I had earned it with my grades. I'd earned it with my work for Jesus in the school. I deserved to go to Cambridge. Cambridge University. That's how I felt. And so when I was rejected from Cambridge University, I was devastated about that. And I was angry at God. And it wasn't just a moment of anger. It was like, this is what I've been working towards for so many years. This is why I've earned God. What are you what are you doing? How is it that my mate who's stupider than me and not not even a Christian, so he doesn't have to have a God fighting for him, his cause. How is it that he's got in and I haven't? I was furious. And it, and to be honest, for a few months I was sad, I was miserable because this was the thing that for generally for the whole way through sixth form I'd been working towards getting this place at the best university in my mind. So I was miserable, sad, and angry of God. And one day I was sort of moaning and groaning to my mum and expressing my frustration. And my mum said, oh, have you told God how you feel? And, and I was kind of, I kind of, that was a bit of a stunning moment for me, really, because I'd been angry at God. But had I really gone to the place of prayer and told God that I was angry with him? Had I really had that kind of out with him and explained how upset I was with him? And the answer was probably no. And, and so my mum, very godly, wise woman, t- said, have you done that? And I responded to my mum and I went into my room and I closed my door and I genuinely got down on my knees and I said, God, I don't know how to do this. I don't even know whether I'm allowed to do this, but I want to tell you how I feel right now. And as I was doing that, I felt, I don't, this isn't how I read the Bible at all often, but I felt very, a, a very strong um, impulse just to open my Bible. And I opened it at the book of Habakkuk, which is a book that I'd never read before in my life, didn't know existed in the, in the Old Testament. And I read this guy, like, telling God how he really felt about the injustice of violence, you know, complaining about real things. <laughs> like, I was just a silly teenage boy who was complaining about actually something that wasn't very important, really. This guy was complaining about real things. And I read this guy and I thought, how can he pray like this? What is he, why is he expressing himself like that? This is outrageous. Does he know he's talking to God? And this is what he's saying. And God just said in those moments, I'm big enough to handle your real feelings, Duncan. And so that moment of reading the book of Habakkuk transformed my prayer life because I felt like I was able to tell God how I really felt. And I do it often. You know, I love God. I worship him. I sing his praises. But I also tell him how I really feel about life and what I want him to do. And I pray openly and honestly and authentically. So that moment changed my prayer life. It also changed my relationship with the Bible because although I I loved the Bible, this moment was a moment where I felt like the book of Habakkuk had been written for me. You know, it was like it was thousands of years old and like I felt like it had been written down that long ago because God knew that I'd get to this moment where I needed to read it. You know, obviously that's not true. It's a book that's spoken to lots of people, but that's how I felt in that moment. And so I started to have greater faith that when I opened the Bible, God would actually speak to me. It wasn't just words on a page. It was God meeting with me because that's what was happening. It was an amazing moment for me. This book like, really transform- like, made me, in lots of ways, who I am today, a man of prayer, a man who loves proclaiming God's word, a man who loves reading God's word, because of this moment where I was angry with God and he met me in the book of Habakkuk. And, you know, I, f- I feel a little bit like this now. I feel a little bit like Habakkuk's been written for me now. Like, 
Rachel's mum is really not very well. Rachel's an only child. We're very stretched. Rachel's living up north. I'm kind of sometimes down here, sometimes up there to support her. We're, we're stretched. We're going through something difficult. I don't fully understand what God is doing and why he's doing it. It's painful. It's sad. There's moments of tears. There's moments of anger. There's moments of frustration. And yet Habakkuk teaches me that I can pray honestly about those things. Tell God how I'm feeling. Ask him to move mightily, to cry out to him over and over. And even when it feels like he's not responding, there's still you know, an invitation from Habakkuk to keep crying out, to keep believing in the power of the name of Jesus, to keep going to him in prayer over and over and over again. And so I'm praying prayers like this. Lord, you're perfect in all of your ways. You see, I'm lacing through those qualities of God that Habakkuk speaks about. I'm, I'm talking about him as my holy one, my God, the one who I love. But I'm also being like, Lord, you're perfect in all your ways. You're mighty to change situations. Why is this happening? It feels so wrong to me, God. This isn't what I would be doing in this situation. Why are you doing it? Lord, you're the holy one. You're the perfect one. You're the one who loves me even more than I love myself. Why, why is this going through? And you love my mother-in-law more than she loves herself. Why is she going through that? Why is that so hard for her? I wonder whether you pray like this. Praying, calling upon the everlasting nature of God, the might of God, the power of God, his love for us, but also telling him exactly how you feel, exactly how you want him to move. This is real relationship with God in the place of prayer. So why is there suffering in the world? Well, God hasn't finished answering that question yet. And as we read through the rest of the book of Habakkuk, we're going to start to see God's response to the violence and injustice in Israel and in Babylon. But one thing suffering does do is it calls us to authentic, honest, worshipful prayer to God. And this is why Christ died on the cross for you, that you might come to your father and speak with him honestly and openly and worshipfully and just tell him how you feel and what you're going through. And that's just the start of the reason why this is the best book in the Bible. Um, but I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to give you another chance to respond. Because I think that this is, a, this is kind of a, uh, this is a personal response with God. This is a me and God time. This is, you know, it's, it's hard to pray with someone else and be this open and honest with him. So I'm going to pray. Then I'm going to give you some space to again just go to God and pray some more. Um, and then I'll end our meeting. Um, but yeah, let me pray once more. Oh Lord God, our God, our Holy One God, you are so awesome and mighty. Your power is absolute. We worship you. You're the rock on which we stand. You are our saviour. You're the one who loves us. And yet, Lord, we recognise that there are difficult things going on in our lives right now. And there's injustice and violence in our world. And Lord, we just want to cry out to you. We want to express our true heart to you. We know that you're big enough to handle our raw emotion in the real way we're feeling. So Lord, we want, to, we want to say, why is there violence? Why is there injustice? Why are these things happening, Lord God? And so I pray during this moment of quiet now, our hearts would please you because they're real prayers. They're authentic prayers. They're not us putting using holy, holy language because we want to be all prim and proper. No, this is us telling you who you are in your glory but also telling you how we really feel and the things we're going through, Lord God. So may this be, this be a moment where we meet with you, Lord God. Amen.
Lord, I thank you again that you hear us when we pray. Lord, sometimes it feels like you're not listening to us and you don't hear us, but we know that you do. We know that you are mighty and powerful and awesome, that all power belongs to you. And we know that you are the God who uses all things for the good of those who love you. We cling to that promise. We celebrate that promise and we thank you for your absolute power. But Lord, make us people of real, authentic prayer, Lord God. I don't, Lord, this church, we don't want to be a church who puts on masks when we come in the room, when we go to life groups, when we go to prayer meetings. We don't want to be people pretending, Lord, but we definitely don't want to be people who put on masks in that place of private prayer, Lord God. We want to come to you and share what we're really going through. And we thank you that we can and that when we do that, we're praying to the one who really can make a difference and who really will knit all things together for our good, for our eternal salvation. We thank you for the love you have for us, the love that you showed us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that um, that this sermon would not just be a sermon that impacts us now, Lord, but would change the way we pray in an ongoing way to you that we would always come to you with this level of honesty and authenticity and honour and worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.